Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Kerajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. So I'm joined today by Dr. Giles Morrison. Giles is a medical doctor and clinical user experience strategist. In the increasingly digital world we live in today, user experience or UX is a huge field and its applications in healthcare are becoming more and more important. So we are going to talk more about clinical UX, which is a term that Giles himself coined. We are talking to a pioneer in this field today. So Giles studied medicine at Barts in the London and practiced as a doctor for three years before moving into IT and eventually into what he does now, helping UX professionals and healthcare companies make products and services that are valued by clinicians and patients. He is also a mentor and career coach, especially for doctors transitioning out of clinical practice or people interested in working in user experience. And he gives talks and workshops on career change, personal development and personal branding. So Giles, I'm really glad that you could join me because you are the first doctor I've spoken to on the podcast who, like me, stands at the intersection between design and healthcare. I know we share the same vision of what design can do to improve healthcare, but for people who are just hearing about clinical UX, can you explain what it is and maybe also what it isn't? And perhaps I suppose we should take a step back and explain what user experience itself is in and of itself. First, thank you for, for having me here. Uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to, to, to share a mic with you. Yeah, user experience. There's many definitions that people have for this, whether they're new to the profession, been in the field since its inception. User experience is ultimately about the experiences that people have with anything that's been designed. So someone is having an experience with what they're hearing right now based on the quality or the speakers of the device that they're listening from. They can't really control the quality unless they get a different device. And that device has to be designed in a particular way to function in a way that's going to really help them hear well. But there's still an element of, are they in a room that has any other distractions, any noise? These are things that can impact that experience that we can't control as people recording this. So when I look at user experience, it's like, well, what is it that people are interacting with that I can actually control? Like I can't control the weather, but I control whether I carry an umbrella, especially in the UK. And even the umbrella is not going to be perfect. If there's a strong wind, I'm still probably going to get my bottom half wet from the wind, pushing the rain to my legs, which the umbrella can't control. So that umbrella could be designed better, but I don't really think we're going to wear the whole body suits to protect ourselves from the rain. We haven't got that looking particularly attractive and, and being uh, easy to use at the moment. But it still goes back to that same premise. User experience is a focus on what are we doing to improve the experiences people have with something that's been designed that we can actually control. When we look at that within healthcare, 
we're talking about anything that someone interacts with, whether it's a service, a physical product, a digital product that's going to impact healthcare in some way. That's quite broad because it can include a website that encourages people to have five fruit or vegetable portions a day. But then when it starts to go into the area of, say, track and trace as a website to see if someone has got COVID and do the contact tracing for that, we're starting to go into the realms of what I define as clinical UX, which is a focus on the experiences primarily of clinicians and patients with healthcare technology and services. You see, when you are creating a product or a service that involves clinicians or patients, this is going to become regulated because if something goes wrong, someone could be harmed, someone could die. It's going to be regulated because there's an opportunity for ethical dilemmas to present themselves. Um, we can talk about that in a bit more later, but the main point is that there's more opportunities for things to go wrong and going wrong having devastating consequences. Thus, having an understanding of medicine, of the diagnosis process, of how clinicians actually operate in dealing with patients, whether they're a doctor, nurse, physiotherapist, pharmacist, working in a lab, the patient themselves, the experiences they have, what encourages them or discourages them from even seeking medical help in the first place when they've got a medical problem. These are things that I have to keep in the back of my mind in the day-to-day basis when I'm working on a clinical UX project. So it's still UX work when you consider there's research that you do to understand the problem. There's a diagnosing process that clinicians would understand that is ultimately what we're doing. We're trying to get the root cause of the problem, give a label, then you give for some treatment. That's the design process, really. You're going to iteratively find the best solution that solves the problem that's been identified. Then you evaluate, make sure that you've done a good job. You follow that process that is trying to remove some of the complexity of the reality of working in UX. But that's generally what you do when you're working in UX, is that you're supporting the understanding of the problem and the creation of the best possible solution to the right problem that needs to be solved and making sure you've done another little check that you've done a good job. And doing that in clinical UX really does rely on understanding healthcare, medical science, behavioral science. Wow. So can you tell us about your journey to where you are now? How did you end up in what we now call clinical UX? I would say that clinical UX has definitely been a happy accident, but it was quite clear that this was the right trajectory for me. So when I was very young, four or five years old, I loved drawing. I used to have a high top. If you remember Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I would draw myself as a stick man with this block on his head. That's what I did when I was like three, four years old. Um, My ability to do a self-portrait dramatically improved as the years went by. But before that skill developed, it was much more like copying the illustrations from books and really being interested in, in being an illustrator and a writer, being creative in general. By the time I got into secondary school, I realized that artists tend to only be wealthy when they're dead. And so I thought I should probably consider an alternative career path. At that point, I was probably around 13, 14 years old, where my IT teacher said, Charles, there won't be any jobs by the time you graduate from uh, computer science or some other degree. 
that was a lot of nonsense, of course. IT is a massively booming industry. And even though there's been issues with layoffs in the tech industry in 2023 and, and 2022, really and truly, like it's, there's always going to be jobs for IT professionals. But I was discouraged because I trusted my so-called elders, who I thought were wiser than me. So then I took time to reflect and I thought, well, maybe I should take a career in medicine because I like behavioral um, biology. I like helping people. I want to have a job that should pay well, maybe a job that I can travel with. So medicine just kind of made sense, even though I didn't really know any doctors on a personal level, no relatives that are doctors. But I pursued that career, got into medical school, um, graduated in 2011. Loved working with patients, but there was a lot of problems that I faced. I wasn't clinically depressed, but I felt like I was losing myself. The time I was being creative was diminishing over time because you're just so busy when you work as a doctor. The long day shifts, the night shifts, the weekend shifts, the 12-day stretches. It was becoming too much and I had to move all the way from East London to Grimsby. And it's in the name. It's kind of grim. It was a challenge for me going there, but it was necessary. It was necessary because I grew as an individual. It's a wonderful craft medicine, the blend of art and science. And if it wasn't for my medical education and experiences, because you have experiences as a medical student, but it's nothing like being a doctor. And you have a medical education by going to medical school, but it's nothing like education like life actually working as a doctor. So the combination of the medical degree and the three years of service has given me enough of a foundation of medicine to be like, it wasn't right for me to be a doctor, a conventional one at least, but I can still solve problems with the knowledge that I've acquired. I just didn't know that my first love for being creative and then moving into IT would then combined with my love for medicine, healing people and traveling to form a career in digital health and then realized that that career in digital health was becoming a career in clinical UX. You started the CUXA, which is the Clinical UX Association in 2016, to build a community of people who are passionate about this subject. But what does the CUXA do and what, what is your vision for it? The CUXA started out as just a means for me to spread the gospel, so to speak, about demanding, in fact, better experiences that people have in healthcare. There's all kinds of problems, particularly topic of health inequity is a massive issue. And in general, just even using the NHS as part of a majority in the country, you're going to have bad experiences. And it shouldn't be seen as acceptable. We should demand the best in healthcare, not just from the clinicians, uh, but the non-clinicians and every touch point that we're having with healthcare. Why can't it be better? Considering it was designed, could it not be designed better? Someone had to decide that people are going to operate in a particular way, their behaviours, the way they interact with patients and each other, the tools that they use, digital or physical. Someone designed all that. And it's like, well, this can be better. And I can't just be talking about this as an individual. I need to talk about this on a platform that I can share with other people and that that voice can be far louder 
than any one person's voice can be. That was the main point behind the CUX saying it's still tied to its vision. I think the next phase of its evolution really is to be a professional body for people who are working in clinical UX or want to enter that field, providing training and development for these people, community for them, opportunities to connect with like-minded people and to standardise the practice of UX in the healthcare industry. Yeah, because as you say, this is a field that's developing, it's growing and a lot of people enter the field and they're coining there or they're deciding what they're going to be called. There's also kind of a lack of standardization in terms of how we work. Obviously, we're all problem solving, but we don't necessarily have protocols or guidelines that have been set out as standards. So it's really amazing work that you're doing. I have to say just so much of what you've said really resonates with me. Um, So much of your journey and what you're trying to do in this healthcare space is, is really, you know, it's, it, it feels like we're kind of on a similar type of path. And I know we've talked about this a lot, but it is, um, it's great for, for me to speak to someone with a like mind. And I know there are going to be people listening to this as well. People listening to this podcast who feel the same way. Why do we, why do we put up with the standards that are in place? Why do we treat healthcare as if it's already a losing game and we just have to kind of endure it in a sense. Why do you think that that mentality exists when it comes to healthcare? I know that we're in a, a public system. This is a state funded system, but instead of a kind of a feeling of positivity around that, that, oh great, healthcare is free. Let's make the best of it. It's kind of it is, as they say, something that we just feel that we have to endure. Why do you think that kind of pessimism exists? The first key reason that comes to mind is that it's tradition. It's become habitual to accept that not only things aren't going to get much better, but you have to be resourceful. Just work with what you've been given and do the best that you can, knowing that you won't get more. Unfortunately, most of healthcare that's delivered by governments and public health initiatives relies on goodwill. And the reason why this is a problem in healthcare is that ultimately, despite healthcare being a basic human right, like good health being a basic human right, the healthcare industry is a business. It's not altruistic. There's people who are billionaires because of the healthcare industry. And relying on goodwill is not sustainable not for the nature of the work that they're doing, especially if they have to put themselves into very, very difficult situations with debt and compromises to quality of life. You then tell them that actually they now need to give up more of their time to do their job that they're not being paid well enough to do. So we're accepting it because it's been accepted for so many years and people have just found a way to just still live so technically, if they're living, it can't be that bad, is a sort of attitude. I think the other major reason is that, and it's tied to this whole tradition side of things, is that because there isn't enough of a force from within the industry to do better, it's hard to create the workforce with the skills and knowledge who can bring that change coming from within the workforce. 
It has to come externally. Even if it's hired in, there has to be some sort of motivation internally, but it's just not really there. So you will see even like with the track and trace um, initiative and the app in the UK, we spent tens of billions to get that made because ultimately we don't have sufficient knowledge of how to do it properly within the NHS. Like when we're like, okay, we need to do a screening program or we need to provide a new clinic for a specific disease. We know how to do that effectively and for quite a low cost. But when it's like, okay, we're now going to involve um, an IT solution. None of us are developers. None of us have ever done this before. We know generally what problem we're trying to solve, but we don't know how to solve it other than we need an app. We're going to be relying on people who then don't have the expertise of healthcare on their side. And so suddenly you've got people who have great expertise, but not in each other's disciplines, working together, but not really working together. And so the results speak for themselves. You know, the burnout and frustrations that clinicians are having, patients relying on Google to get diagnosed, not just because it's taking so long for them to see a clinician, because sometimes they don't even trust that the doctor will make a good diagnosis because of, again, the burnout, the stress, they're overworked, they're making mistakes. These are real problems that technology is supposed to be solving, not making worse. So that lack of expertise in-house for really innovating, not just being resourceful, but actually creating technological marvels, that's, that needs to change as well. Um, and we need to also have politicians to stop gaslighting clinicians, stop trying to make out like there isn't a problem. We need the politicians to recognize that what's going on in healthcare isn't good enough, that we need to do better and to put money and, and, uh, people power behind change to make things better. A very nuanced answer to a very nuanced problem that we have in healthcare. So for a beginner, what are the basic principles that they can use to help them to start thinking like a designer and start solving problems, whether that's relating to behavior change or efficiency in their clinic? What would you, what would you tell them to, to read or what would you tell them so that they can start on that journey? So there's five pillars, I would call them in clinical UX. There's dignity. There's people-centeredness, there's continuous improvement, evidence-based, and being ethical. So dignity is actually like respecting someone's right to good health and being able to be respected. People-centeredness now, very similar concept to patient-centered care, but keeping in mind that there's a variety of people that's going to be influenced by a product or service, any solution that's been designed and put out there, whether it's to serve directly a patient, but indirectly the clinicians that serve that patient, the loved ones that are caring for that patient, even the people who have to provide and maintain the product or service that's used by that patient. These are people that you also have to keep in mind and people-centeredness is recognizing the different type of people and keeping them at the center of that decision-making and design process. And there's continuous improvement. So it's not just the iterative design where you've got a problem and you're working out all the best solutions and then you've got the best solution and you're done. 
it's like at that point you're like, okay, so how do we now do better? And again, doctors are very familiar with this concept, even with dignity as well. We're familiar with these concepts. What we do as, as clinicians, where you're going to safety net a patient. Once you've given the treatment, you safety net just to make sure that if there's any other problems, they come back. But you still don't necessarily fully discharge them. Even if you're discharging them from hospital care, you've discharged them back to their GP who should be dealing with them for the rest of their life. So there should always be an opportunity to continuously keep this person healthy. Sadly, doesn't work as simple as that. But definitely with UX design, you should be thinking, well, now that things are okay, how do we keep it okay? How do we prevent things getting worse or there being a problem that arises down the line? And it's evidence-based. Again, this is a core concept to medicine. Everything we do in medicine, there should be evidence that backs up what we're doing. Whether it's the copious amount of evidence from our forefathers working in medicine, whether it's what we've gathered from variety of investigations or even just an examination or even taking a history, it paints a picture and it says, well, this is what's going on. Here is the evidence, which then leads to subsequent treatment. We should be using research findings, qualitative, quantitative data, directly gained from dealing with participants or what we've used from our own expertise to analyze the situation and come to conclusions about what's going on and what needs to change or what's actually working well. You shouldn't be encouraging people down a particular path that they otherwise didn't want to go down, that they aren't interested in. Common example, you get a pop-up that's trying to get you to subscribe to a newsletter. And it's very, very focused. It's like it's, it could be a newsletter about becoming a millionaire. And so it's like, yes, I want to be a millionaire. And then he says, no, I don't want to be a millionaire. Never, you know, I, I, don't, I don't care about money type attitude. And it's like, well, there's a lot of people who care about money, but they don't want to sign up to your damn newsletter. That's why they want to click no. Shouldn't be manipulating them and trying to guilt trip them into um, signing up to your newsletter. And that is something that's ethical, but within healthcare, an example would be pushing for patients to use a mental health app when there's no evidence that it's going to help them with their mental health. And you're charging them for this and abusing them in a position of being very vulnerable. That's unethical. And at times, specifically certain parts of the world, this can be legal. But just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's ethical. That's why it needs to be distinct. So consider dignity, people-centeredness, looking for continuous improvement, having an evidence base, and being mindful of ethics in what you do. And you're ready. You're much more likely to deliver a user experience that patients and clinicians deserve and one that's going to be making a huge difference in their lives. I think that's really helpful. Beginning kind of to give people an idea of the type of questions that they should be asking themselves when it comes to any kind of solution that they are coming up with. I think it's particularly important as I see more and more people interested in going into health tech. And I feel that there is maybe a lack of awareness of how we got these problems that we have today so that we can avoid these issues coming up again. And so I wonder, what do people need to be aware of about the problems that we have today to stop them from replicating those problems again in the future? One of the best things I learned from doing my master's degree in human-computer interaction 
the whole concept of systems thinking. Now, when clinicians think about systems thinking, oftentimes it's either the fact that different organ systems can impact each other, or when we're being a bit more holistic, we recognize that actually there's an ambulance service that engages with the hospital, which can impact how we deliver emergency services. But there's also social services and rehabilitation, which are separate systems, services, which, depending on how they operate, can impact discharging from the ward. We recognize that there's not just services, but there's a system in place. There's this combination of people and technology that operate, serve a particular function, that when they're together in an ecosystem, that is a social technical system, the complex web of people and technology, different operations, procedures, processes going on at play, and where a change in one part of the overall system can have both positive and negative, or sometimes just positive or negative consequences elsewhere in the system. And this concept of social technical systems and systems thinking and a methodology to improve the experiences and effectiveness of a social technical system. So not just to make it better, but to bring a change that is advantageous. Because the system is functioning like the NHS, a lot of people would say, has got a lot of problems, but technically people are healed by it. So technically it's working, but it's not in a great place. It could be much better than it currently is. Social technical system as it is, because that's what it is, it's complex, where both people, technology serving different purposes. Soft system methodology would be the process of how can we make things more efficient, make it better? It's not a problem that we're fixing. It's bringing changes which could have negative consequences as well as positive ones. And once I started learning more about this and understanding that, you see that systems are at play everywhere and you need to employ systems thinking if you want to actually have an impact that is moderately predictable, is not 100% predictable, and has measures of success that you can use to gauge whether your efforts to bring change has been successful or not. That's something I would say would would be really core to to get your head around. I think like you say, this type of work or this type of creative problem solving isn't very much encouraged, I suppose, or it's not, it's not necessarily taught in, um, in medical school. And I guess I talk about this because I, I think it's really interesting, this kind of mindset that you have to develop to be able to do that kind of work. You have to actually thrive on failure in a sense that like, okay I learned something from this and um I guess it's, it's interesting to talk about that because we live and we work in a system that doesn't like failure obviously we've got big things at stake here and obviously we don't want to fail when it comes to patient care but then that mindset seeps into when we do make a mistake we don't want to admit it and when it comes to other parts of our lives as well and our careers, we don't want to take a step, take the wrong step with our career because we we're taught that any mistake is absolutely fatal. How do we overcome this 
this type of thinking because the way you do one thing, as they say, is the way that you do everything, right? I think it comes back to those kind of UX pillars I mentioned before. I think there's a tendency that we're ticking a box because that's the measure of success is that we've done these very specific tasks. So that's the bare minimum that's needed or that's just otherwise, like I said, the measure of success. But if you look at the real problem at play and what really measures success in context, you might realize you're, you're ticking the wrong boxes. So for example, there's times where a patient has come into the hospital, a better still, to GP practice. They've come in with three problems. You've asked the patient what's their most important problem. You've only gathered evidence from them about that main problem rather than problem two and three, but you have to be done with them um, within seven minutes. And so you haven't gathered evidence for anything else. So it's not your responsibility to solve it now because you don't have evidence to work with. There hasn't been a trigger that should lead you to do any further investigations. You've ticked the box of seeing patients, but have you actually really delivered a great healthcare service? I'd argue you haven't. You haven't fully listened to the patient because you don't have time for them. And yes, you've gathered a lot of information about what they've deemed the most key problem, but they're not the healthcare professional. It's because they're fixated on the fungal toenail because you know, it's getting snagged and it's a bit painful when they're pulling on their socks and taking them off. But they're not talking about the chest pain that they've had going on for years or the cough that's been going on for more than a few weeks, which actually is a lot more sinister because they've also lost weight, even though they're trying to lose weight and don't realize that it's the cough, which is a symptom um, non-specific of the cancer that's ridden in their body that you didn't investigate because you just focused on their fungating toe. This is the truth. This is reality that's going on. We're, we're talking about tick box mentality. So you've got to look like, well, what's the real measure of success? What's the real problem we're trying to solve here? And what's the best way to solve that problem? And then start looking at the constraints such as, well, we don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of money, so on and so forth. And then technology can come into play. Is there a way for us to assess that patient that doesn't involve having to use a clinician or at least a doctor as that clinician? Is there a way that we can assess or gather that information in a way that a computer system can, just through an algorithm, forget about AI and machine learning, it's overrated. I'm not saying it's not useful, but I don't need a machine learning tool, AI tool that finds out that someone has had a persistent cough for three weeks and there's blood being coming up and they're losing weight and there's history of uh, bone cancer and whatever else in the fact. I don't need AI to tell me that we need to investigate to see if this patient's got cancer as well. It helps having a medical degree, but you don't have to have a medical degree to, to come to those conclusions because there's a pattern. That's what the algorithm can help with. So technology can help out here. And this is what's often missing, is that we're being driven more so how we are creating processes and the use of technology based on the constraints rather than first focusing on what's the problem that needs solving and then finding the best solution. Because the design process demands an understanding of constraints. If there are zero constraints, zero requirements, technically the solution could be anything. How do you know that you've got the best solution? 
You need to have the constraint. It actually focuses the mind, allows you to narrow down in the best solution. But you've got to be mindful. Like there's a patient that is a human being. Are we upholding the principle of dignity here? Are we being people-centered? Are we looking for continuous improvement? Is there an evidence base for what we're doing? Or even an evidence base to tell us that we shouldn't be doing it? And that's a really, really great way to look at it. To get a little bit more advice from you before, before we go, I ask everyone who comes on the show to imagine that they are the dean of a university or a place where we're training people who, who are going into healthcare to change the future. So imagine that this is you and you have the power to influence the curriculum in any way that you see fit. What would you want people to learn about clinical UX as it pertains to systemic racism or any other part of healthcare to better prepare them to make a positive impact in the world of healthcare? First, keep in mind those clinical UX pillars. They should be what you're building on top of to deliver a great experience for clinicians and patients. You need to know about behavioral science. We do learn that really from birth how to manipulate our parents to get what we want and then other adults and other people around us and ultimately how to keep people happy as well. We, we do learn about behavioral science, but it's much more nuanced when we're looking at dealing with people who are complete strangers and we're trying to do what's best for them rather than something that's just going to help us. We need to hold that same scientific rigor that we do in medicine to other aspects of problem solving in healthcare. And that's a, another cool thing to learn is how do you apply your problem-solving process effectively to solving other problems other than I've got a sick patient who needs immediate treatment in front of me. Looking at service design, so not just creating a product, but creating an interaction between people that leads to an outcome that's positive, leads to some sort of change. Know about systems thinking as well. And demand that we do better, that we have a service of healthcare that is really equitable, that really recognizes that people deserve a great healthcare and they actually get it. Amazing. Thank you so much. There's so many questions that I could ask you that are kind of popping off in my mind. I could ask you more about design, careers, business, public speaking, thought leadership, all of these areas that you're involved in. So you'll have to come back on the show at some point. But thank you so, so much for your wisdom. And thank you so much for, for having me and having this podcast. It's an incredible resource. I love the way that you're bringing people who have got such diverse experiences, thoughts, and new careers even, all coming from a medical background. Like it's, it's really wonderful and inspirational. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. I hope it inspired you in your personal journey. Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor. Subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.